0: So it is week four in our Sermon on the Mount teaching series. If uh, you're just jumping in with us today for the first time, welcome. We're honored you're here. We've uh, been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're just kind of picking it up. uh, One week where we leave it off from the last. So let's go ahead and jump in. We've got a lot to cover today. And the title of today's message is Offending Everybody, because that's exactly what Jesus is going to do in Matthew chapter 5. Verses 27 through 32. So, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, go ahead. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put all the verses up here on the screen for you. And uh, I'm kind of during the little video there. I was kind of looking around the room trying to see if I could see, but there's a lot of y'all, so it's kind of hard to see. So, let me just kind of say this: today's sermon is probably, well, not probably. Today's sermon is definitely a PG-13 content. So, if you've got a kid in here and uh, you are not ready to have some conversations with them on the way home, our kids ministry is open and and even if they were there at 9 30 they do something different at 11 and uh, this is your chance to uh, exit the room and take them and then not send me an email so I'm making sure I cover all the bases up front now if you're joining us online you're like man I'm pouring me another cup of coffee what are we about to do okay so let me tell you the goal of today's message is not that I offend everybody that's not the goal of today's message But if I am accurate to teach this text the way that Jesus taught it, I do think everybody's going to be offended. So again, just for context, we have uh, three boys, first grade, fifth grade, seventh grade. Um, my fifth grader and seventh grader could sit in here. There's nothing I'm not going to say today that I haven't said to them. We've talked about multiple times. My first grader, not so much. So hopefully that helps give you a little bit of content, not context rather. Now there's some message notes inside your bulletin. Go ahead and find those, get those out. Let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take this passage and we're going to break it down kind of into three smaller uh, chunks, if you will. And each one of those is going to have a corresponding application. That's why there's three of those in your notes. If you're joining us online, you can access them at vaughnforest.com. But um, if you call Vaughn Forest home, you know, sometimes we take a minute to get to those applications. And so I'm going to work through some stuff uh, before I get to the applications. And if you want to jot down a few things in the margin of your notes along the way, you can. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Let's go. All right, here's the first little chunk of this passage, Matthew 5, 27, 28. Jesus says, you have heard it said, that it was said, you shall not commit Adultery. Now, you probably noticed, if you're here on our campus, all of those letters are in all caps. It's not because Jesus was yelling. He wasn't trying to, you know, be like when you send an email. you Don't do that. Put something in all caps. It's, that's not what's happening here. Uh, the New American Standard, which I'm reading from today, does a really good job of this. Anytime there's a verse in the Old Testament that is used in the New Testament, they put it in all capital letters. And so that we can tell, oh, wait a second. That shows up in the Old Testament, which is why it's in all caps. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So before I get to the application for you to jot down, let's just unpack a few things, make a couple of observations about the context of what's happening here. First of all, important to know, the Pharisees were focused on the external, Jesus focuses on the external. Internal. That's been a common thread every week. Chad did an excellent job last Sunday teaching and talking about the difference between anger, hatred, murder. So the Pharisees are all about the external murder. Jesus is like, let's talk about the hatred in your heart. Very similarly, the Pharisees are caught up in what's going on on the external adultery. And Jesus says it's about what's happening in your heart. That's always what Jesus is going after, and that's a common theme of the Sermon on the Mount. Second observation, the Pharisees had a very narrow definition of sexual sin and a broad definition of sexual purity, which was convenient for them, yet sinful. So only a very small list of what they would consider to be sexual sin. A lot of other stuff they were doing incredibly inappropriate and sinful, and yet they were letting themselves off the hook from the, their own definitions. And Jesus is clearly going after that. And then third, sexual purity starts with a commitment at a heart level. I don't really know when this happened. I can't give you a year, but somewhere along the way, the church in America, not Vaughn Forest Church, but just kind of the church as a whole, It just feels like we punted on this whole sexual purity thing. It feels like that sometimes the attitude is, I mean, do we really expect people to have sexual purity in the world we live in today with all of the things that are happening? I mean, we can't possibly expect teenagers or single adults to live a life marked by sexual purity. And it just feels like we've just conceded that ground to the enemy. And sexual purity has nothing to do with the season of life you're in. It doesn't matter if you're a teenager a single adult or a married couple. Sexual purity always starts with a commitment in your heart. That sexual purity isn't something that, that we just do as a, well, I guess that's what we're supposed to. No, like Jesus is after your heart. He's after your heart. And maybe you know that. Jesus after your heart. Maybe you know that sexual purity is something the churches talk about and it's in the Bible here and there, but guys like me over the years who preach the Bible have not done as good a job as we should have telling you why. Why is it that God cares about sexual purity? Why is it that sexual purity and the commitment towards it at a heart level matters so much? What's the first Application I want you to jot down today, and it's worded as a challenge for all of us. I will choose purity of heart, and here's the reason so that I can experience total trust in my closest relationships. Purity paves the way for intimacy. It's very difficult to have intimacy without purity. And all intimacy is, is to fully know and to fully be known. Our culture has taken intimacy and turned it into sex. So people want intimacy, they think they'll find it in sex, and all that brings is heartache into their lives. So a couple can be married and intimacy can be lacking because there's not trust. And might I suggest it's because two people have not pursued Purity of heart. See, this is so much bigger than the season of life you're in or whether you're married or whether you are single. In every relationship of your life, might I suggest that God's will, God's desire, is that you live those close relationships and total trust, built on intimacy, fueled by purity. But if you're not pursuing purity, it's going to be very difficult to live those, it will live with those types of relationships. So that's why. God created you. God wired you. God knows everything about you. And when God commands something from us, it's because he has something for us. And what he has for us is total trust in our closest relationships. Let's go back to the passage, pick it up kind of with the second chunk here. Verse 29. If your right eye, Jesus says, makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. And throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What on earth is Jesus, (laughs) excuse me, talking about here? Gouging out eyes, cutting off body parts. So again, before we get to the application, let's make sure we're all on the same page. So first of all, Jesus is using dramatic figures of speech, hyperbole. So the literal way to interpret this passage is not to gouge your eye out or cut your hand off. The literal way to interpret this passage is to see it for what it is. It's a dramatic figure of speech, but because Jesus uses a dramatic figure of speech, we do need to ask the question, what is the right interpretation then for this passage? Let's talk about both aspects that Jesus pointed out. If your eyes are causing you to sin because of something you have looked at, then act as if you don't have any eyes. In other words, don't look. That's what Jesus wants us to see. It reminds me of a story from years ago when we were living in New York City. I was having coffee with a buddy of mine. And he starts to unpacking this with me. He says, man, listen, I, I've really been working on something. Like I know the whole, you know, lust in the heart and and, and and being pure. And, you know, every day when I'm walking to work, I walk past this strip club. And he said, I'm not tempted to go into the strip club, but I am tempted to look at all the signs. He's like, they got these gigantic like sandwich signs. They take up all the sidewalks. You can only imagine, you know, what's on the signs. And every day as I'm getting closer, I'm like, don't look, don't look, don't look. And then some days I give in and I look and then I beat myself up and I just have this bad day at work, and I'm kind of listening. I'm not really sure where we're going with this conversation, and he says, but last week, it just hit me out of nowhere. He said, I came out of the steps from the subway, and I start walking to work, and once again, I start having this conversation with me, like, don't look, don't look, don't look, and he goes, I felt like God just said to me, take a different route to work. He's like, I realize this entire city is a grid, so, all I have to do is kind of take a left and go down that road and come back to my office from the other direction. He goes, I don't know why I'd never thought about this before. He goes, And now he goes, I'm walking to work every day. I'm having a blast. I'm taking in the sights of the city. I'm not tempted. And man, it's affected my attitude and everything about how I'm behaving at work. He says, It's just been great. And I was like, What a great, simple lesson for all of us to heed. Just find a different route. So what is that for you in your life? Like, I don't live in New York City, but there are things you do every day that you are literally walking right into the middle of temptation. Go ahead and act like you don't have any eyes. Don't look. Take a different route. If it's something on the way to work, put your phone away for a little while if you need to. Close the computer. I don't know. Quit watching the show. Whatever the case is, if it's causing you to sin, act like you don't have any eyes. Change it up. Quit looking. And Jesus also gives us another example. If your feet keep taking you to places where you're led to sin, then act like you don't have any feet. Quit going there. It's the person who says, I only get drunk when I go to the bar. Not the smartest guy in the world, right? Maybe don't go. I do, I do pretty well until I go party on the weekends. Don't go party on the weekends. You know, mo- most of the time I behave. It's just when I'm you know, out at two or three o'clock in the morning. That's when I keep seeing, getting into trouble. Okay. Sometimes we make this more difficult than it needs to be. If there are places you go that are leading you to sin, stop going there. Stop going there. And so Jesus is trying to just break it down for us. Every day, simple, how do you go about applying and obeying this in our lives? But there's a little principle here that's so easy to miss in this passage. And I didn't put this in your notes. I probably should have. So let me encourage you to jot this down. It's very insightful. Heart adultery follows eye adultery. So Jesus starts off by saying, don't lust in your heart. And then the very next thing he does is talk about our eyes and what we see. And it's a really powerful principle that what you allow your eyes to look at can lead your heart towards lust, which Jesus says is adultery. So we have to be mindful about what we See, Mindful about what we look at. Mindful about where we allow our eyes to rest. And there's a really helpful verse in the Old Testament that gives us some guidance for that. It's found in the book of Job. We talked about Job back in the fall. Lots of things we can learn from the book of Job. But this tiny little verse tucked away in Job chapter 31, verse 1. Look what it says. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. We'll leave this up here for a second. I think this is a really powerful verse. Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes. So this is between me and the Lord, and I'm making this decision. I'm gonna take control of what I allow my eyes to see, focus on, dwell upon and I'm gonna make this covenant in such a way that I will not look lustfully at a woman. Might I suggest that somewhere along the way, Men have taken a verse like this, and I told you you're gonna be offended today, so buckle up, get ready, okay? And have almost placed the blame for lusting at the feet of our sisters in Christ. And said things like, I'll make a commitment with my eyes to not look lustfully as long as none of y'all wear something that's provocative and makes me want to look. Am I feeling comfortable yet? It's just in the water. It's just in the culture. And somewhere along the way, that level of sexism just took root kind of in the culture of how we approach this whole idea of purity and holiness and what we will choose to look at. Now, if you don't believe me, spend some time reading commentaries on the passage that I'm reading today. This is what, you know, we do. We nerd out, we preachers. We read all these commentaries. And can I tell you every single commentary that I read about this particular passage that was not written in the last 30 years. So these are guys that are all with Jesus, okay? They wrote these, you know, 75, years ago. Every single one of them, after taking the opportunity to unpack, here's what this passage means, would then go out of their way to take a shot at women. Every single one of them. And if you don't believe me, and just to make you more uncomfortable, I brought one of the quotes with me. So let's take a look at this, all right? Didn't put the name up there, maybe I should have. After unpacking the passage, look at what he says. This may be an appropriate moment to refer in passing to the ways girls dress. It is one thing to make yourself attractive, it is another to make yourself deliberately seductive. You girls know the difference, so do we men. Anybody feel judged right now? Listen. Go back to the verse. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Hey, here's the thing. That covenant has zero to do with what anybody else is wearing or doing. Men, we don't get let off the hook. It's a covenant that we're making with our eyes before a holy and righteous God. Now, if you're raising daughters, I'm not. I'll talk about raising boys here in just a minute. If you're raising daughters... I would encourage you to help your daughter find her worth and her purpose and her value and her identity in Christ. And then let everything else from her life flow from that. That would be my encouragement to you if you were raising daughters. But if you're raising boys, and I got three of them, seven, 11, and 13, let's just have a conversation for a second. Dads, moms, grandparents, I'm gonna throw y'all in the mix too. First of all, we have to acknowledge we are not raising boys, we are raising men. And the moment you begin to look at that little boy in your house, as someone who will eventually be a man that God has challenged and entrusted you with for a very short season to help mold and guide him to become a man of God who pursues the things of God, who has a heart that pursues purity and righteousness and holiness, parenting starts to look a lot differently. And see, here's the deal, parents, grandparents, if you've got sons and your baseline for helping them understand not to lust is how another woman is dressed, you're playing a losing battle. See, all of these guys that wrote these commentaries 100 years ago wrote these commentaries 100 years ago before pornography was prevalent everywhere in our society. And if you've got a young boy at home, he doesn't have to go looking for pornography. It will find him. And if you have not had that conversation with him yet, you need to have that conversation with him today. Because what we have to train our boys who will become men to do is to walk away from temptation to not allow the temptations that are around them at all times to now become the excuse or the crutch for why they're giving in to these things and then disobeying the heart of a holy and righteous God. And pornography is bringing destruction in every possible way into our society. And men, might I suggest that the reason why some of you won't have that conversation with your son is because you're hooked on pornography. And you're carrying around the guilt and you're carrying around the shame and it is literally keeping you from being the man of God that your sons need to look to. And ladies, I'm not gonna let you off the hook either. The fastest growing population group in our culture that consumes pornography is women. And it's an epidemic. And it's tearing people, marriages, and lives apart. And and when preachers start talking about pornography, everybody kind of goes, yeah, we kind of assume that's something you guys would say because the Bible has some stuff to say about that. And I try to stay one step ahead of everybody and say, well, when we talk about pornography, I'm not gonna use Christian sources to to kind of cite for the danger and, and the problems and the tragedy that it causes, like, I'm going to use some sources from the other team, and I'm just going to call the other team secular sources. I'm not saying they're terrible people. I'm just saying they're not sending out daily devotions every single morning. So let me just give you three secular sources that talk about the dangers of pornography. First one, Huffington Post. The biggest sex educator of young men today is pornography, which is increasingly violent and dehumanizing, and it changes the way men view Women. Here's the second source. This is from GQ Magazine. Scientists at Cambridge University recently studied the brain scans of porn addicts and found that they looked exactly like those of drug addicts. With such an inexhaustible supply of porn at our disposal, there is a growing concern that it's beginning to affect our brains, our relationships, and even our bodies. We've been saying this for years in the church. of men in this study had developed a regular porn habit between the ages of 12 and 14. And might I suggest, in a post-pandemic world where we told kids to look at screens for four to six months, that age has now dropped from 12 to 14 to 10 to 12. And if you don't think that there are people and there are entities and there are companies that are taking advantage of that dynamic that was created to go after kids, you are living with your head in the sand. That is what's happening in our world right now. Let me give you one more source, if two's not enough. The Northwestern University Law Review. The unfortunate reality of pornography production is that often the production of pornography is neither harmless nor consensual. Rather, pornography plays a unique role in the fueling the human trafficking industry by both contributing to the demand for more traditional forms of sex trafficking and creating another route to profit for traffickers who enslave victims for the production of pornographic media quite simply if you consume pornography you are supporting sex trafficking it's that simple and if we don't pursue a heart of purity church how are we any different in the world now you may be here or you may be joining us online and you may go i am with you i agree with you but i don't know how to stop it's enslaving my life what am i supposed to do we have an email address that we use from time to time called help at vaughnforest.com if that's you Send an email to that email address. It goes directly to our pastors. We won't share that in a prayer request. We'll help you. We'll help you find help so that you can break free from these chains, okay? But church, this matters. And and if we're gonna be a people who pursue God and pursue purity, our lives have to look different from a heart level that's then lived out with how we go about living our lives. But see, here's the bigger principle. How do you actually live a life that accomplishes this? Let me ask you to jot this down. That's the second challenge for today. I will be intentional about every area of my life so that, again, here's the reason, I can experience total trust in my closest relationships. I want to challenge you to be intentional. Don't be haphazard with how you use phones or how you use technology or the shows that you watch or, or the things that you allow or the places that you go. Be intentional. If you're not intentional in this world we live in today, that tide will just suck you back out the sea. It's just too much. You've got to be intentional. And if you have kids that live in your home and you've given them technology, for Pete's sake, look at it once a day. go through everything on their phones and they look at you and go, that's none of your business. Man, as long as you live under this roof, you don't have something called your business. Your business is my business. You disappoint your kids to the glory of God. I can't tell you how many times my boys stomp up the stairs mad at me, slamming the door, and I just smile to the glory of God. Doesn't hurt my feelings. You know why? They'll thank me one day at the wedding reception. I'm not living for approval from an 11-year-old. I'm living to watch my 11-year-old marry a godly woman and give me some granddaughters for Pete's sake, right? All these stinky boys, all right? Give me some granddaughters. That's what I'm living for. Hey, parents, sometimes you got to bow up a little bit. Sometimes you got to drive a stake in the ground. Sometimes you got to tell them, I do not care what all of your other friends do or what all of their other parents let them do. We live differently in this house. And one day you'll thank me and then let them storm off. They'll thank you one day. If you try to do this by yourself, parents, you'll fail. That's why we need each other. That's why we tell you all the time, get in a life group. If you can't really get in a life group, find somewhere to serve around here. See, if all of your friends are parenting the exact opposite of the way you're parenting, it's going to be tough. And while God may have placed you with them to be a light for them, let me encourage you to find some other parents who are parenting the same purpose that you are, and encourage one another. Pray for one another. Be there for one another, Okay. Let's keep going. Third little chunk in this passage. Jesus says in verse 31, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Again, it's in all caps because it's from the Old Testament. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So let's talk about why Jesus moved through this progression, where he talked about lust of the heart, and now he's talking about gouging out eyes and cutting off hands, and then he kind of takes a sharp left turn, and now we're gonna talk about divorce. And the best way to maybe help us see why Jesus would take the conversation there is to see that there were kind of two competing thoughts at the time, and we kind of understand rivals, you know, Alabama and Auburn and Georgia and Florida. So I'm trying to construct this in a way where maybe we understand the rivalry here between Team Shemai and Team Hillel. Now, those words don't mean anything to you, but hang with me for a second. These were the names of two prominent rabbis. And all of the Pharisees and Sadducees followed rabbis who were older than them, more established in them. And their interpretation of particular passages shaped the thought of the day. So these guys were prominent leaders, and uh, they had followings. And, and, and the Pharisees were constantly trying to figure out which team is Jesus on. Is he Team Shammai or Team Hillel? You can see more of this in Matthew chapter 19, where they have a very similar conversation with Jesus. Now, Team Shammai was a very really small team. He actually taught that when the Old Testament speaks about divorce, it speaks of divorce only if there's been adultery that when he read the Old Testament, he said, it looks like that the Old Testament allows for divorce when there's adultery. Again, very, very small team that wanted to align themselves with him. Team Hillel on the other side had a lot of people. Most of the Pharisees were on Team Hillel because what Hillel had said was there's this little word in Hebrew that if we kind of get some translations, get a little creative, we can make it say unseemly. And what that does is it allows us to divorce our wives for any unseemly action. And again, this was the prominent thought of the day. And and you can research this if you'd like to in your own time, but the men who subscribe to this belief system, you could divorce your wife if she burnt your dinner when she cooked it, unseemly. You could divorce your wife if As she got older, now not to mention you were also getting older too. That's neither here nor there. But as she got older, you didn't find her to be as attractive. And there was a younger woman who you thought was more attractive. You could divorce your wife and you could marry this younger woman. And the list went on and on and on. And these men who were supposed to be representing the things of God, this is what they were perpetuating in society. It was oppressive, it was abusive, and they made people think that this was from God. And Jesus is going to go right after that and make sure they understand that the heart of God is to uphold marriage. Marriage was God's idea. God instituted marriage between one man and one woman for life. And the Pharisees are more interested in trying to figure out how you can get a divorce than Jesus is trying to say, no, it's actually all about marriage. But in the context of this passage, Jesus said something. I don't know if you picked up on it. So let's kind of circle back around to it. What does verse nine mean? Okay. I don't know if you saw it when I read it here a second ago. Um, most preachers, when they read through this passage, they kind of go really quickly through verse nine and they don't circle back around to it. I was talking to a buddy of mine yesterday and I told him what I was gonna preach on today. And he said, what are you gonna do with verse nine? I said, I'm gonna preach it. He goes, good luck. <laughs> he goes, I just always kind of skimmed past that one. And I get it. And and it would be really easy for me to do the same, just kind of have read it and, and not really circle back around to it. But because of what it said, I think that we actually need to circle back around to it. And I think we need to engage it. And I think we need to see what it says. And I think we need to ask, what is it saying to us now in light of what Jesus said? So if you missed it the first time, here's what verse nine says. Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Pretty clear statement. So, what are you supposed to do with that? Well, one of the things that we do when we interpret the Bible is we let the Bible aid us in interpreting the Bible. You can find any verse in the Bible and just kind of pull it out of context and go, it means this. That's not a really good way to read the Bible. So one of the things we're going to do in the podcast this week is we're going to talk about this verse in light of the rest of Scripture and what it speaks to about marriage and grace and human relationships and all of those things. And I don't have enough time to go into all of that right now, which is why we'll do it on the podcast. But for the message right now, I want us to kind of engage this verse for a minute. See, I think the temptation when we read a verse like this is to go, does that verse speak to me? I mean, I haven't gotten married yet and I haven't been divorced. And so let's just kind of move on to the next verse and find a verse that kind of meets me where I'm at. But see, I don't think that's how we're supposed to read the Bible. I don't think we read the Bible for information. I think we read the Bible for transformation. So here's what that means. You can read any verse in the Bible, including this one, and on the surface, it not seem like it applies to you. And yet that verse can be used by God through the power of the Holy Spirit to transform you. So what I want to do with this verse is I want to take it and speak to five specific groups of people that I believe are here on our campus today and joining us online as well. So here's the first group I want to talk to. If you're single, what are you supposed to do with this verse if you're single? If you are single, be very careful about who you marry. Be very selective about who you marry one day. Parents, if you're not already praying for your children's future spouse, let me challenge you to begin that today. Nothing will shape your life more than the person that you marry. And it matters that you marry someone who is a Christ follower. I mentioned living in New York earlier. When we lived in New York, our church was 85% single. Morgan and I led a life group for engaged couples. And so it was a really fun season in our life. But we, 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 spent a good chunk of our life in ministry ministering primarily to singles, whether it was college students or single adults or, again, in, in New York City. And I can't tell you how many times over the years a, a, a single adult who loved Jesus would show me a particular list, sometimes tangibly, like pull out the paper and show me or begin to describe to me the list of some things that he or she was looking for in a future spouse. And most of the times it was a really dumb list, if I can just be honest, Okay. I'm like, I want to marry somebody who loves to hike, or I want to marry somebody who loves to ski, or I want to live somebody who, who graduated from that college or who wants to live in this part of the country or does this for a living or who makes this much money? And I'm like, tear up the list. There's only three things you need to look for in a future spouse. This is gold. If you're single, jot this down. It's gonna save you a lot of trouble and money, gentlemen. Here's the thing, okay? Three things. One, does he or she show evidence of loving Jesus? Not does he or she tell you that they love Jesus. Is it obvious? When I met Morgan, my wife, she didn't have to tell me she loved Jesus. I could tell there was evidence. Is there evidence that he or she loves Jesus? Here's number two. Does he or she own a Bible? Okay, I don't even care if it's the digital version of the Bible. Does he or she own a Bible? Do they have any awareness of God and his people? And then three, here's the kicker. Does he or she submit his or her life to the truth of God's word. If you meet somebody that there's evidence that they love Jesus, they own a Bible, they actually read it, put it into practice and submit their lives to to it, three checks, marry them, everything else will take care of itself. You'll be fine. You say, really? Absolutely. Who you marry matters. Second group of people I wanna talk to. If you're married and you are considering divorce and there has been no infidelity... You're just kind of tired of each other. My first question would be, have you even tried to apply anything we've talked about in the Sermon on the Mount so far? I mean, we talked about blessed are the peacemakers. Are you both seeking to make peace in your marriage? We talked about blessed are the meek, which is power under control. Are, are, are your emotions under control in your marriage or do your emotions kind of dictate what's happening in your marriage. Chad talked last week about forgiveness and seeking reconciliation. Have you forgiven one another? Are you pursuing reconciliation in your marriage? See, if the answer to all those questions is no, no, we're not trying to be peacemakers. No, you know, we, our emotions are out of control. We're not really trying to, you know, keep them under control. And we're certainly haven't forgiven each other, and we're definitely not pursuing reconciliation. Then let me be very clear: we can't help you. See, that's not the business that the church is in. The church is in the business, not the marriage business. We're in the business of taking the transforming power of the gospel message into every situation. See, either the gospel is powerful or it's not. You don't get to pick and choose which areas of your life. You go, yep, power of the resurrection works there. But in my marriage, no, I think we're too far gone. Now, let me tell you why I can speak to that with such authority. That's our story. Many of you know our story. we have shared it from this stage many times, my wife and I. We've been married for 20 years. The first three years of our marriage were incredibly challenged. No infidelity, nobody stealing money, nobody doing all the big, bad sins that end marriage. We just couldn't stand each other. And at some point, you're just like, what's the point? But we didn't give up. And some good Christian, biblically-based marriage counselors guided us Some godly couples that were older than us, they guided us to see how the transforming power of the gospel message could become the transforming power to change our marriage. And all these years later, we have a different marriage with the same spouse. I know it's true because it is our story. If that's where you are, don't give up on your marriage. Sit down with a good Christian marriage counselor who is going to upset you frustrate you, make you mad, because they're gonna agree with your spouse. And guess what? It's gonna be for your good. Because God uses us in marriage to refine the rough edges, to make us more like Jesus. So if that's where you are today, do not give up on your marriage. Third, if you're married and you're considering divorce because infidelity has occurred, let me first say I'm sorry. And biblically speaking, you can get a divorce. But you need to sit down with a good Christian, biblically-based counselor who will walk you through the process of forgiveness. Because whether you stay married or you choose a divorce, if you don't forgive that person, ultimately your heart is going to become bitter. And the hard truth for you that you probably already know is there are no easy options. It's hard either way. If, If you choose to stay in the marriage, it's going to be a long time before you can trust your spouse again. If you end the marriage, it's going to be a long time before you can trust someone else again. But God's grace is sufficient. God can sustain you through this season. So keep going to him. Here's the fourth group I wanna talk to. If you are single again because you went through a divorce, I would challenge you to wrestle with this passage of scripture and reach a conviction for what you believe God wants you to do about this passage of scripture and be secure in that conviction don't waver, don't waffle, but, but don't skip the step of wrestling with God's word. I think it's really important that you do that. And I do think there are brothers and sisters in Christ that can reach different conclusions based on this passage. We're gonna talk more about that in the podcast. I know some pastors who will not officiate weddings between two people who've experienced divorce. I'm not one of those pastors. I've officiated weddings before between two people who had both experienced divorce in their past. But they both loved Jesus. They were being brought together as one, and they were building their marriage upon God and his word, and Jesus Christ at the center of it. So that was something I felt comfortable blessing. That's my own conviction. But what I'm saying is if you don't wrestle with God's word and reach clarity on your convictions, somebody can begin to talk you out of whatever you think God's actually calling you to do. So wrestle with it, reach your conviction, and then stand firm in that. And then finally, the fifth group. If you're in your second or third marriage because one or both of you have experienced divorce in your past, I don't believe that this passage is saying your marriage is cursed. I don't believe this passage is saying that God won't bless your marriage. What I do think the implications of this passage are is you're going to face some challenges that other people won't face, and I don't have to tell you that because you already know what the challenges are. But do you know what I've seen so many times? I've seen amazing pictures of grace and kindness and love and blended families. And I think it's one of the greatest opportunities we have to be a witness to a world where a lot of people have walked through divorce. A lot of people are experiencing the challenges of remarriage and a blended family. And I've seen so many times how God uses that as this incredible example where people who are living in the world, facing the same challenges, look at Christ followers and go, how do you do it? Well, it's because of the love of Jesus. And it presents an amazing opportunity to point people Jesus, and so I do think it's an opportunity for God's grace to be shown through you. Now, we have gone on quite a journey, so here's where we started, and here's where we ended up. We started with lust in your heart as adultery, and we ended with divorce and remarriage as adultery. That's the journey Jesus has taken us on through this passage, and here's why. Number three, last thing I want you to jot down for today. Jesus isn't leveling the playing field so everyone will be offended. He's leveling the playing field for all sinners, The title of the message is a little misleading. Yes, there's some offense in what Jesus is saying, but ultimately what Jesus is going after is what we still do today, which is compartmentalize and differentiate between sins. Well, I haven't committed adultery or I haven't gone through a divorce, therefore I must be good. Jesus says, no, it's a level playing field regardless of where you're at because sin is a condition of our hearts. And it doesn't matter what your past is. We sang about it earlier today. Jesus has already paid for your sin. That we all show up on equal ground at the foot of the cross. Would you bow your head with me this morning? Jesus, thank you for that. There's nothing that we can do to disqualify us from having our sin forgiven by you because you've already paid the price and you said it is finished. But Lord, in the quietness of this moment, some of us need to confess our hearts are not seeking purity. We've allowed our hearts to pursue lust and it's affecting everything about our lives. Lord, some of us have gotten pretty lax. We've just kind of lost the value of being intentional about where we go and what we see and what we do. And God, in this moment, We want to confess that and experience your conviction so we can be freed from that and pursue you. God, some of us are walking through difficult seasons in our marriage and everything in us says, give up. God, we want to own that. But still hold out. There is hope, not because of us, not because of our spouse, but because of who you are, that you can bring the power of the resurrection to our situation, and to our circumstance. And Lord, we declare that to be true. We claim that by faith, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.